very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview, you know what to do. Go to VeritasRadio.com and give yourself the gift of truth by clicking on the subscribe button. If I mention the term black hole, most people would think of this dark monster that sucks everything around it, even light, when in fact, according to tonight's special guest, it is a source of creation. Today we're going to talk about punk science, inside the mind of God. Sounds to me like a very big subject, and indeed it is. Our special guest is Dr. Manjir Samantha Lawton. After qualifying as a medical general practitioner, a holistic therapist and working in a cancer help center, Dr. Samantha Lawton began a quest to highlight the links between science and spirituality. This has culminated in the emergence of a new scientific vision that she communicates to the public in lectures, workshops, and numerous articles. She has co-founded the Children of the New World Conference and is the UK contributing editor to Children of the New Earth magazine in California, has a science column in Planet Lightworker magazine, and has been featured on television documentaries. She's the author author of Pong Science, Inside the Mind of God, and The Genius Groove, The New Science of Creativity. And to learn more about Dr. Samantha Lawton, visit her websites at paradigmrevolution.com, pongscience.com, and also pongsciencemovie.com. And directly from Derbyshire, England, UK. I'm privileged to welcome Dr. Manjir Samantha Lawton to Veritas. Hello and welcome. Hello, good to be here. Oh, it's my privilege. And as I was telling you offline, sometimes when I read books, sometimes they shatter my paradigm. And your book is is one of those. It's great to find somebody. But you know what? Why don't we just have you tell us the story? You come from a, a family of doctors, very orthodox doctors. You were basically trained in science, but all of a sudden you step outside that box and you basically came to this, can I say, rabbit hole that got you. And now you're basically telling us the real, the real story of how the universe got created. Why don't you tell us, let's go back from early times on how this transformed you. Oh, gosh. Well, yes, you're absolutely right. I um, I come from a very medical family, very high achieving family. And uh, my uh, family originally were based in West Bengal in India. And um, people who know that sort of culture, um, it's a culture that educates both um, their sons and daughters to quite a high level. And uh, so there's a lot of competition um, to be a doctor or a, an engineer, which is seen as a very, very high, um, high career in India. And uh, so my parents came to the UK um, and uh, in the early 70s and they had me. And of course, my parents are both doctors. They met in medical school. My grandfather was a doctor. And it was very much um, from the beginning, very clear that I was going to have a medical career too. Um, it's just what is expected of you, boy or girl, that um, at least one, if not two, um, sons or daughters will get into medical school in every family. It's it's what's expected. Um, so because of my temperament being, you know, quite calm compared to I've got two sisters, um, people would often pick me out. So from a very early age, I was groomed for medical a medical life. 
And um, so I was aware of that. And, uh, you know, so I went through all the usual sort of exams and, you know, very much being trained to um, to uh, go through the academic route and work hard and, and get through all that. And uh, also the scientific life, although my parents uh, have a Hindu background, you know, it, it, it was science was um, revered in our household growing up, much like some people might revere the Bible. Uh, my mother was very much about chemistry and physics being, um, all, you know, very, very special. And um, th- those were the highest things to attain, uh, to to um, to go towards, you know, have been, been into physics, chemistry, maths were, you know, very holy in our house, like the Bible might be holy in other people's houses. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. you know, there was there was this scientific drive. And it's it's very much like that in a lot of Bengali families, even Bengali families that are, um, you know, where the children have have always lived in the UK or US or, you know, wherever they, they retain that culture. And um, so I um, ended up going to medical school in London and um, that's where everything changed for me. I was a complete and utter skeptic. So that's where, um, you know, I kind of stepped out of the box, really. Now, punk science, when people hear that term, punk science, why did you write the book in the first place? Oh, right. Um, that was something that um, uh, that really gradually grew because, um, you know, I really went from a skeptic to um, overnight, I uh, suddenly had an, an awakening. And this was in the first few weeks of medical school. And I went to what I thought was going to be a yoga class with, um, you know, exercises and postures. And somebody else had signed me up. I didn't even sign up for this. Uh, but when I got there, um, instead of doing exercises, they actually did a meditation and um, so what happened was I ended up having something called the Kundalini experience and I'd never heard of this before. I was a complete skeptic. And so overnight, my world was completely rocked, you know, and um, I went on a journey. Here I was in medical school, very first term in London and med school is, you know, from a particular scientific perspective, they don't understand anything spiritual about people. They shun it. Um, it's very non-holistic. And uh, so gradually I was going through all these experiences of spiritual awakening in parallel with my medical training. And so I initially went through a bit of a rejection of science, but um, then when I started to study about um, quantum physics and um, faster than light theory and all of these wonderful things that co- were coming out of cosmology, for example, in the 90s, dark matter, dark energy and all that sort of stuff. Um, I started to bring the two together and realized that, um, you know, there is a, a field that, uh, I mean, I, I definitely knew I wasn't the first to come out with bringing science and spirituality together. There's just so many amazing authors such as Gary Zukav, Deepak Chopra, and all of these amazing people. I wanted to uh, write a book that was contemporary, easy to understand, and had some pop culture in. And, um, you know, since I was quite young, I was into the punk movement, which is a sort of music movement, um, which is still very much revered in Britain. Um, You know, we had bands like the Sex Pistols here. Sure, certainly. uh, And it was, you know, it's that spirit of rebellion um, that I was, you know, capturing that this is rebellious science, this is not about establishment. And um, because I knew that the skeptics would just be like, you know, rubbishing it. And it's a statement that this is in your face, this is the new, and um, this is not uh, <laughs> This is not an apologetic statement. And uh, it doesn't matter if someone's going to disapprove because, you know, this this is what's happening anyway. So, um, so that's where the whole punk thing came from. But the idea to write a book, um, I didn't know what was going to happen. Like, I didn't realize I was going to actually come out with all the stuff that you mentioned at the beginning of, about black holes, I just simply wanted to write um, a contemporary, um, sort of easy to understand uh, book that was fun. 
and um, what went on was <laughs> quite a surprise, really. But that's where it all started out. I suspect that the music had a, a a big effect on your transformation because you had sections of the book, for example, you you say we don't need no education, Pink Floyd, and or it's the end of the world as we know it. So I suspected that punk music probably had something to do with it too. But you know, I've always had this burning question: Who created? the creator, which brings me back to the biggest conundrum of cosmology, the Big Bang. Do we know where it banged and what banged? Oh, gosh, that's uh, that's a big question that a lot of um, physicists really want to know because um, in, in their paradigm, I'm just going to go into the paradigm of orthodox science for the moment. It's not something that I agree with, um, but... Uh, they, they have this idea that everything was created in in one moment, and so if you follow the universe back and in time, so that it it comes more and more into a single point, um, we can follow it according to their parad- paradigm um, to almost to the point of creation. But then we don't know what happened. We don't know how. Um, you know, basically you're breaking all the laws of physics at that point because um, something, everything comes out of nothing and that's not allowed. Um, so, you know, it's breaking all the laws of entropy and everything like that. And I was actually at a um, a meeting in a physics conference in England and um, Neil Turok, who uh, was formerly of Cambridge University, and uh, is now at the Perimeter Institute, I believe, in, in Canada. And um, he actually put up a slide, and he was talking about his sort of brain theories, uh, where, you know, brain, B-R-A-N-E, actually collide, and that could have created the Big Bang. And he actually put a little hand on the slide, because he was saying, well, we don't know how it got started, so this is as good as an explanation as as anything, but effectively the hand of God. So here I was in a physics conference and they're putting up a slide of the hand of God, which is really, (laughs) really quite hilarious. So, you know, in the orthodox scientific view, which is not what I talk about, um, they've got a big problem because um, it just doesn't really work. Um, But, you know, they've got a a phrase that says shut up and calculate. So um, (laughs) most of the time they don't let it bother them. Uh, but yeah, there's a there's a lot of things that that, that don't fit. Um, but the theories that I've been talking about actually um, can help to resolve some of these issues and explain some of the actual evidence that we're getting through, and that's what's so exciting. And I have, as I prepared the audience right from the beginning, this is going to be a very very deep interview, and a lot of times it's going to shatter a lot of paradigms. You know, when we think of tangible objects, and this was a hard one for me to grasp, you say there's no such thing as a solid reality. Are you implying that the universe is a hologram? Gosh, well, um, for, I mean, this isn't just me talking about this. I mean, this is uh, in terms of the, the universe not being solid. Um, you know, we did, the, this is the scientific journey um, to the 20th century and beyond, you know, so when we came up to the 20th century, we we were, you know, thinking that um, everything around us is made up of solid particles. And um, but when we started to look deeper into the nature of reality, of course, we realised that the um, the atoms are actually made up of smaller particles with lots of empty space in between, and we don't really know what that consists of. And uh, when you go deeper, and of course, into the world of quantum theory, where um, you know the, the behavior of these particles is according to uh, whether or not we're looking, whether or not we're measuring, and um, that it, it's just incredible. So um, there's some, there's some, re- you know, this was the sh- real shattering moment in terms of the nature of reality, and um, so that's not just me saying that. You know, this is actually the nature of quantum theory, and of course, um, the famous Schrodinger's cat. Um, you know, thought experiment about whether or not the cat is alive or, or dead, and, you know, until you actually look at it with the radioactive source in the box. And um, so, you know, this this is where we got to in the 20th century. So, um, yeah, the, the, this is uh, what amazes me also, uh, working coming from a doctor's perspective, is that a lot of doctors don't know this, a lot of medical doctors 
and it's quite amazing and so another part of what why i wanted to get into this is because um you know things like non-locality for example and quantum theory where particles are connected um no matter the distance could actually help explain things like distant intention and uh, so there have been some studies to show that distant intention distant prayer actually works in um in controlled uh medical trials and um but you know it's very much dismissed and i think part of the reason why it's dismissed is we don't have a mechanism well you know if you look at things like quantum entanglement i'm not saying that this is proof but it's kind of interesting that you have this quantum entanglement idea where particles are connected no matter the distance and then you have this idea of 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 distant intention and in science you can't say that you proved anything but it's an idea that's worth sort of looking at what's very interesting is that um a lot of medical doctors have no idea about these concepts which are at the cutting edge of physics um they're not taught these things at all so they are very much working in a mechanistic universe which is solid and um you know newtonian and and they will go down to the level of the molecule which they think of in terms of uh you know sort of billiard balls on the end of sticks and uh fitting into each other in a lock and key uh mechanisms and it's a re- reductionist that. approach yes yeah the re- absolutely reductionist approach there are actually a lot of doctors are pretty scientifically illiterate when it comes to quantum physics and uh, anything that goes beyond. Um, so, you know, things like the holographic universe idea that you mentioned, these are concepts that are currently in mainstream physics. You know, uh, what I wanted to do with my work, people tell me that I do, um, t- uh, taekwondo with, <laughs> with concepts because what I'm really showing is, um, hey, you know, um, mainstream physics is really quite weird. And, um, you know, y- y- people think that it says X, Y, Z. But if you really look into mainstream science, um, all of those old ideas have disintegrated anyway. It's just that people don't know about it. So doctors are still working with, you know, the idea that everything is solid. They don't really conceive deeper than that. And so mainstream scientists, Nobelists, you know, all sorts of people are saying the universe is holographic. Um, so it could be sort of basically a projection um, onto kind of like a 2D surface. It's quite a complex um, complex theory. But, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not even saying that that, that, that is uh, correct. What I'm saying is this holographic idea is also in the mainstream as well. Um, so, uh, you know, whether you, you agree with it or not. So, um, what people don't realize is that, uh, you know, there are scientists out there who are, you know, perfectly orthodox. They're doing, um, you know, they're professors of physics and they're saying pretty out there stuff. And uh, if you look at that and take it back to some of the esoteric ideas, there's, there's a lot of, um, uh, parallels, a lot of comparisons. And you seem to have obviously stepped stepped outside of our limitations by writing the book. When we think of zero point temperature and the speed of light, you see that that is where everything comes from, where there's activity happening, where creation is occurring, the black hole. Just because this is outside of the limitations of our perception, that's not the limitation of our universe. Give us some perspective of how you have actually flipped my my conventional wisdom, because I thought of black holes being these monsters that devour even, you know, photos and photons around them. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's the conventional view. So, um, you know, in science, we sometimes have a um, a concept that is just like a stepping stone um, until we get a better concept. And that is a progress of science. And that's okay. You know, we, we should be looking at things that can p- continuously evolve. And sometimes that means throwing everything out and completely um, changing your paradigm completely. And black holes are, are going to be one of these ideas because the concept that um, we have been living with with black holes um, for, you know, pretty much a century now, 
um, is, uh, is, is now going to be turned on its head by the evidence itself. Um, so it's not, um, you know, it's gone from a theoretical idea. So how it all started with black holes is that people took Einstein's theory of relativity and um, looked at how he said that space and time can uh, bend. And they went, well, what would happen if it bent so much that you've got a point of infinite density? And uh, so you had a singularity at the center when a star collapsed in on itself. Um, the star of a certain size. And uh, so scientists like Chandrasekhar, for example, were involved with this. And they they realized that what you might have is a point of infinite gravity. Well, a point of infinite gravity then is something that is going to suck in everything around it. Um, and the idea came that there's this event horizon that is around the black hole. And if you go through the event horizon, um, you're probably, that's a place of no return. And there's kind of like a lot of um, speculation as what would happen to you as you're going through the event horizon um, and all of these sorts of things. And um, John Wheeler uh, in the 1960s actually came up with the concept of the name of black holes. And um, in the 1970s, uh, Stephen Hawking said that um, black holes would re- weakly radiate and something called Hawking radiation. Uh, but there wasn't any sort of real um, evidence of that. Um, now, all all that didn't really didn't change for a long time. And in a lot of people's minds, black holes are still guzzling monsters. They can't really understand anything different. Um, but what changed was the evidence. And uh, when you start to look at the evidence, something strange starts to come to mind. One is that um, black holes are everywhere. They're actually at the center Supermassive black holes at the center of every single galaxy, every galaxy that we've looked at. And that was completely unexpected um, because black holes were thought to be kind of a rare occurrence. So when you get a black hole that's at the center of every galaxy, you have to start to wonder what's going on. And that's indeed what they found. And not only that, there's a relationship between the center of um, the black hole size at the center of the galaxy and the size of the galaxy itself. There's, you know, an absolute linear relationship that you can map, which is really quite interesting. And um, the other thing is um, the black holes aren't very black. Aren't, aren't very black. They're actually emitting lots of lots of radiation. And they're emitting it in pulses. Sometimes they pulse with... Um, like gamma ray bursts, which is a type of uh, radiation we might be familiar with on the electromagnetic uh, spectrum. And sometimes they pulse um, with x-rays or radio um, waves or, you know, they're, they're giving out lots of different types of radiation. Now, this is a bit of a, a, a puzzle to most mainstream scientists because they're thinking, well, aren't black holes supposed to suck everything in? And the way that they're giving out this radiation as well is very strange. It's just two very high energetic jets that are coming out. Um, they're called bipolar jets. They're at, they're at, one, at 180 degrees to each other. And um, so they're coming out, and sometimes these jets will spiral. Our own Milky Way galaxy has these jets, and it spirals. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting when you actually look at the evidence. And um, this is what I would, where I came in. I actually was looking at all this evidence, going, "Hmm, this is kind of interesting. Why are these black holes sometimes emitting um, electrons, sometimes emitting matter? Um, I mean, antimatter like positrons, which is the mirror image of an electron, and sometimes emitting gamma ray bursts." And um, suddenly, I realized that everything changes once you change your um your understanding of um dark matter dark energy all of this sort of stuff and the speed of light so what i realized is actually the speed of light isn't the speed limit of the universe at all it's just the speed limit of this dimension so if i'm going too fast just <laughs> no that's fine <laughs> that does so what i realized is that you know 
it, uh, the speed of light defines this everything in this dimension, but it doesn't define all that's in the universe. You know, most of the universe is dark matter and dark energy. We don't know what it is. And I realize that what that is is the stuff that's actually beyond the speed of light. And there's some mainstream physicists who are actually talking like this, that light is actually infinite. And it's actually um, curled up in different dimensions. They revived the, the Kaluza-Klein um, model of high dimensions. Um, so uh, people in, um, there's another guy in the Perimeter Institute who's uh, who's talking about this. He's written a book called Faster Than the Speed of Light. So these are mainstream scientists. So I was walking in the woods when I had this flash of insight and I realized that what it was, well, it, it kind of was shown to me. I wasn't sort of, this isn't me being clever. This is the universe saying, hello, this is how it works. And my mind sort of, this is after, you know, 10 years of meditation, healing training. So it wasn't out of the blue um, that I was having a multidimensional experience uh, with all the spiritual development that I'd done. But this was a very, very special moment and um where i suddenly saw that actually the black holes are the point of creation and what happens is um from a center of infinite light um this light then differentiates itself so it spirals around and the spiral is very important in nature in the fibonacci sequence and everything and it gets to the edge of our reality and it then splits into a positron and electron and um, this positron and electron we can measure these so what we see in our telescopes is that the electron is coming out of the black hole at almost the speed of light and the reason why it's doing and th these are actual measurements and the reason why it's doing this is because it's only just slowed down to our reality it's only just slowed down enough for us to actually perceive it and, and measure it. So that's where um, that comes from. That's where creation of physical stuff actually comes from. And then it doesn't just stop there, though. The two combine again, the positron and the electron, which are just two halves of light at the end of the day. And they combine again and they form light in the form of gamma ray bursts. And you have this amazing breathing process that's going on at the edge of the black hole. When it moves one way, it produces matter and antimatter. And then it moves another way, and it produces the light in the form of the gamma ray burst. And that breathing, what I also realized is it's happening at every level of the universe. And I, in the book, and I've done a lot more since then, actually, um, I've collated um, a lot of astrophysics data um, to look at how the same process happens in stars, happens even around planets. You even see bipolar jets around planets. Um, happens in the Earth's upper atmosphere in the, in the form of terrestrial gamma ray bursts, which I'll come back to later. If we could talk about water maybe a bit later, would that be okay? And, oh, of course, yes. <laughs> and so, yeah, that that's basically it. That's the black hole principle in a nutshell because – it's the same pattern at every single level of reality. It only makes sense if you realize that the speed of light isn't the total speed limit. It's just the speed limit of this dimension. And, um, you know, you, you've got this simplicity at the heart of, of the universe, at the heart of nature. And it's creating everything through these, these sort of simple, simple rules. It, it allows the unfoldment of infinity, of infinite different forms. And um, so I went and, you know, being scientifically trained, I had to make sure that I gathered enough data. And after a while, I'm not, you know, I'm not a physicist. So after a while, I started to go, you know, there's so much data accumulating. I'm making so many predictions that I'm seeing come true, um, even that these jets are coming off comets, you know, I, I absolutely have to publish. You know, I went through the same sort of you know, hang-ups that everybody goes through, which is like, who am I to be publishing this, you know? And uh, But it, it just, with the evidence was overwhelming me, the data was overwhelming, and I just went, this has to get out there. And I thought um, the, the scientific establishment is not going to accept this. I'll have to go straight to the public. And um, which is what I did, and I called it punk, 
um, because it's not pandering to the establishment. It's going straight to the public. So I've been speaking around the world for over a decade now. And um, it's it's been amazing. It's been amazing. And so many of the predictions that I made, both in 2003 when I first um, published uh, a paper on this and then in, in the book in 2006, um, it did come true. So I could, I could talk about one of the most dramatic ones a bit later. Absolutely. So, uh, <laughs> and you know, you you just made the black hole principle the most enigmatic and interesting principle for me after reading the book. And I have a a, a double prong question here: If a black hole is supposed to be black because no light can allegedly escape from them, how can we actually see a black hole? And if we're taught that matter is neither created nor destroyed, where is the matter originating from? That's a very interesting question. <laughs> um, so why can we see a black hole? It's a really good question. Um, and the way that we see black holes, the way that the astrophysicists see the black holes is because they look at the center of the galaxy and they can see um, stars spinning around very, very quickly. And um, from that, they uh, have the inference that only something that is a black hole could be causing the stars to spin around that quickly. Um, the other way that we see black holes is that they... Uh, so that's what we see at the central galaxies. Um, is it that, as I said earlier, that ironically, they are emitting powerful, powerful um, radiation. You know, they're, they're emitting these gamma ray bursts that... These gamma ray bursts are so powerful that, um, you know, they, they actually um, had to invent a new form of physics. Um, people actually started to talk about something called doubly special relativity um, in order to, um, you know, try and explain why these gamma ray bursts are so powerful. Because, um, you know, they're coming across from far reaches of the universe with such power they are actually destroying um, Einstein's laws. Um, so th there's all sorts of, you know, interesting things that are going on with this radiation. And um, so that's how you see a black hole. So uh, what was the other second part of your question again? <laughs> Sorry. That's fine. The single part of the question, if we're taught that matter is neither created nor destroyed, where is the matter originating from? Yeah, the matter at the end of the day, everything is actually all one. Okay, so um, the center of the black hole is still the infinite light. And that infinite light, even though it's happening at every single level of the universe, it's we've got to get out of our linear thinking, which is what we tend to do, is the same singularity, the same oneness, the same infinity at the center of every single black hole. And this... The, most of the black hole, or, you know, what we could say most of it, actually exists beyond the speed of light. So um, that's what we call the dark matter, the dark energy. Most of the universe is actually beyond that. Um, and what happens is this this um, this light differentiates itself, and when it reaches our dimension, which is um, under the speed of light at the what I call the perception horizon, so it's no longer the speed limit of the universe, but it's actually the limitation of our normal perceptions. Mystics can actually perceive more than that, but that's, uh, that's it's still the speed limit of what we might call our physical world. So when the light gets to the edge of our reality, the perception horizon speed of light, that's when the split occurs. And um, so our you know, our telescopes are spotting 25, um, the electrons are going at 95% of the speed of light. Um, so because it's just slowed down. So the matter actually comes from the photon, the, the particle of light, splitting into two. So that creates matter and antimatter. Now in the photonic stage, the, the, in the photon stage, um, it doesn't have any charge. Um, it has no mass. Uh, it has no mass, and it's going at the speed of light. Um when it splits into the matter and antimatter, suddenly it gets charge, spin, and, um, you know, all these properties, gravity, mass, you know. So what mass is, is and what particles are, are, um, you know, are actually aspects of light that are seen at different levels. 
So when you see a particle in um, this dimension, it appears to have gravity mass and all of this stuff. And all the particle zoo that the physicists are trying to work out is actually uh, the spiral of light is going throughout uh, all of reality uh, at every single level. And uh, what you're seeing, why we see all these different particles and why they have these interesting properties, is we're looking at this spiral of light almost like from a different angle. Uh, like the the men that are trying to understand what an elephant is by feeling the different parts. And um, we we go, well, this is an ear, uh, this is like a, a fan, you know, and we're trying to figure out without realising that the, the elephant is actually one being. And it's like that when we're looking at all these different particles, what we're looking at is a snapshot of the angle of the light that is actually spiralling around. And we say, oh, this is a different particle, this is a different particle. The particles are actually still light, pretending to be something else, or just being viewed from different levels and different angles, as it were. Um, this is all a, a multidimensional uh, um, process. So um, what I'm trying to do is put it into language that is more linear, but it's not a linear process. <laughs> so it's it's kind of difficult to picture. But um, so, you know, that, that's basically what all the particles and forces, the forces too, where they come from. Everything is all one. And it's it takes on sort of different geysers. And in those different geysers, that's where we get the different particles and even our chemistry and everything like that. So um, there is matter and there isn't matter at the same time. It's Matter is just like pretending to be something else or just being viewed from a different um, vantage point. So <laughs> that's where it all comes from. Now, the concept of black holes, that's the basic premise of your book. Does the same principle that matter is created from a from black holes occur elsewhere? How about stars and planets? And if you look at the concept of as above, so below, or the microcosm is a mirror of the macrocosm, is the same happening at the lowest common denominator, perhaps uh, at a cell level or even at an atom, atomic level, a fractal creation principle that spirals in from higher dimensions? Is that a true statement? Um, That's exactly how it's been shown to me. Um, so when I, after I had that, um, that vision in the woods, I got a strong feeling that I had to go to sleep. And uh, sometimes when we are, you know, unable to, to uh, accept something, uh, when we're awake, sometimes we have to do, do it in our sleep. So, um, you know, people who are mystics are probably quite familiar with that. So I had a dream and uh, the dream was that I saw that the same, behavior was happening inside an atom and uh, when I woke up from the dream I knew that all those are the two pieces that I needed I knew that this what I was being shown is uh, because I mean if I was to sit here and and try and think my way through this I couldn't come up with it in in you know many years it's it's it was a revelation almost, you know. So in the dream, I was shown that the atom behaved in the same way. And once I had those two pieces, I realized through logic, really, that what I was being shown was the same pattern that goes through our creation. So, you know, me being from a scientific background, I have to go, okay, where's the evidence where's, for this? Well, you know, I need to, to see that this is actually, um, you know, what is going on. And to my surprise, I started to rack up so much evidence of sunspots, um, you know, giving off uh, matter and antimatter and gamma ray bursts, periodic. It's, it's periodic as well. So, you know, a lot of um, the, uh, I don't know if you know this, but right now as we're, you know, talking, there'll be people that are scouring the skies for gamma ray bursts. And uh, when they find one, they quickly, you know, train all the telescopes on it. And um, because you don't know how long it's going to last. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, so they'll train the telescope on it. Why is that? Because of this breathing pattern, this, um, this you know, flow from gamma ray burst to uh, the creation of gamma ray burst to the matter and antimatter. They're not explosions. 
you know, they pulsate, they oscillate. And that puzzles uh, the scientists because they don't understand why um, something so powerful is created um, through not an explosion because that's their paradigm. That This has to be a violent event. And, um, you know, but what you're really getting is this gentle breathing process that happens at every level. So the macrocosm and the microcosm, absolutely, it's connected. So um, the evidence is uh, that I've collated for um, the sun uh, and around things like uh, brown dwarfs, where you see the bipolar jets, mm -hmm. um, even on our own planet. And I'll come to the issue of water in a second, but... Um, you know, you think, yeah, like we're sitting on a black hole, you know, <laughs> the Earth can't be a black hole. Well, it isn't a black hole in the way that we've been taught, um, but it shows the same, like every single level down, like a fractal behavior, if you know what you're looking at, you can make predictions. So, you know, we would predict to find some of this gamma ray burst behavior um matter and antimatter happening on the Earth as well. Well, in the Earth's upper atmosphere, um, we've discovered in the last uh, decade or so, through uh, the fact that we've got lots of satellites orbiting um, the Earth, uh, you know, which obviously humanity has not had before, uh, we're able to view uh, what goes on above the clouds in terms of lightning discharges and uh, what happens above, th above a thunderstorm. And what happens above a thunderstorm is you get actual gamma ray bursts, they're called terrestrial gamma ray flashes, um, which are associated with thunderstorms, which is pretty amazing. And people have measured these and they've gone, you know, this is the same sort of power that you get in black holes out in space or in, in gamma ray bursts out in space. And uh, I found it very interesting <laughs> that they're associated with thunderstorms. So I, you know, when I published in 2006, I said, these are the black hole, this is the black hole principle in the, happening in the Earth's upper atmosphere. So I made a, a table of predictions at the back of the book. And um, if I'm right, you know, you should see electrons coming out well we do see electrons coming out of thunderstorms we call it lightning you know so the traditional explanation of lightning is that it comes out of clouds when they build up so much charge that they discharge this discharge like static electricity onto the planet well people have done the measurements there's not enough charge that builds up in clouds to create lightning lightning is just too powerful so again you've got these electrons um, that, you know, as I said, you know, when you get this creation process, you get electrons produced at 95% the speed of light. They're happening in the Earth's uh, upper atmosphere and then the storms, it's called lightning. So um, the other thing that I predicted, of course, is if I'm right, we should be seeing antimatter. Well, in 2010, NASA actually sent a probe up to look at um, the thunderstorm, from the terrestrial gamma ray flashes. It, it, for a while, I think everybody was like, oh, "What is that? <laughs> what, how did how did that appear?" You know, and um, then suddenly people went, "Okay, we better investigate it." So they went and investigated it, and sure enough, they found antimatter coming out of thunderstorms, which was totally unexpected for them but totally predictable uh, by the black hole principle. So, you know, this is where, you know, when you start to get to every every level, um, you can start to predict. It becomes easy, in fact, and I've taken quite a few audiences around the world, and they'll start coming up with examples of their own. You know, how uh, processes that you can see are examples of the black hole principle. We also see uh, antimatter coming out of the centre of the Earth, and, uh, you know, when you look at an atom in a different way, you have electrons that are going up quantum leaps and then coming down again. And when they go up the quantum leap, they, they leave a positron hole. You know, Paul Dirac, um, you know, predicted the existence of uh, positrons. So if you look at it another way, it's the breathing process of a black hole happening at the atomic level. 
And, you know, when you have radioactive atoms, you've got the um, emission of a, an electron into the beta radiation and gamma ray, uh, you know, radiation, just as you have uh, at a high level. And, you know, with all these, these things, more studies will have to be done. Um, but I've got my um, a bit of evidence to show that there's the equivalent of alpha radiation, which is a lot heavier, happening coming out of the uh, out of stars and things like that. So uh, it's the same process. So the um, microcosm and macrocosm, and uh, when we come to talk about water, it's even it's even stronger. So that's been a big revelation. <laughs> but it's it's the same pattern all the way down. Absolutely. And you mentioned fractals. Very interesting topic that I enjoy. Are you talking about the Fibonacci sequence, the, the golden mean, the same patterns we see in nature, on a leaf, on a tree, on a seashell, in humans, the spiral? Where does this universal programming come from? And I have a hard time accepting this order out of chaos happened by chance. Is there some consciousness behind it? Well, the... Um you know, if we're talking about a sort of universal consciousness, um, first of all, you can't understand the black hole principle in context without understanding that um, at the heart of everything, everything is consciousness. So what we're seeing is a light of, of consciousness, but it's not to me like uh, so much a conscious entity that's uh, you know outside ourselves but that we are in this conscious we are this conscious entity um you know sort of experiencing itself really um but from a logic perspective uh, our biology all sorts of processes in quantum physics and biology have come, are coming to the same conclusion that consciousness is fundamental you know, that it's matter arises from consciousness and not the other way around. And that's what some quantum physicists such as Fred Alan Wolf and Amit Goswami, um, you know, that's what they've been telling us for decades now. And then you've got the other side in the biology where, you know, we've been looking for um, the ghost in the machine. Why is it that cells know what to do? Why is it when, when they're forming embryos, you know, medical school, um, you know, I, I really, I was studying embryology and, and the guy who was teaching us said, come forward, come forward. I'm going to tell you something so interesting. This is, this is what you, um, came to medical school for. And I was so excited. <laughs> I was going, oh, at last, at last I've got it. You know, so I went forward and I was like really, really listening. And he was explaining about all the embryology. And then he said the words that absolutely shattered me. He goes, and we don't know why this happens. And all the complexities of how initially, um, you know, a zygote will differentiate itself. And he said those words, and I, I absolutely crumpled again. And uh, it was kind of like, you know, it, it was the why that I was interested in. Why do these molecules that are supposed to be, you know, this is even before the um, neurological system is formed in an embryo, and yet it knows what to do. Yeah, and I wanted to know why. Why does it pattern itself? So there's some sort of if the logical con con conclusion is there must be some sort of sentience or order or something that's forming beyond the physical that is uh, that is causing this to to work. And a lot of people have done a lot of work on electromagnetic fields, like Harold Saxon Burr, who's been looking at like things like salamander embryos and mm. manipulating the electrical fields around um, the eggs, and he can, he can change the sort of growth of, of the embryos that way. So, I mean, he did some amazing work. Um, I'm privileged to have got his book quite recently, which is about, um, you know, 1940s, I think it was published. Uh, amazing, amazing work, So, uh, which is largely forgotten you know, showing us there's something beyond, but it's even beyond the electromagnetic. It's also the sentience, it's a consciousness. So um, is it something that got, got it started? I mean, that's why I kind of partly cheekily call the book Inside the Mind of God, <laughs> because it's um, also kind of saying um, that we're in this one consciousness. And, um, you know, if you want to call it God consciousness or whatever, and uh, Stephen Hawkins says at the end of um, Brief History of Time, then we will know the mind of God. So it, it's kind of like a, a, a reference to that as well. So it, it's, um, yeah, if you understand that everything is consciousness, 
then you understand the perception horizon that um that the speed of light is not the speed limit of the universe it's simply a limitation of the normal you know perceptions of this dimension you know uh, we have um many many levels of perception and the perception that we call our everyday reality sort of 3d is um is you know it, it it's limited to the speed of light you know a, a lot of uh, our perceptions mystics are the ones that have taken their consciousness not their physical self in physical reality but the taken their consciousness beyond the speed of light um when you get into astral traveling and things like that what can happen is um somebody you're not taking your physical body your physical body is too dense, so you still have the the rule that anything physical can't go to this faster than the speed of light. People who are really, really adept will change their physical body into another form and then go beyond the speed of light. That's something different. Um, so those are the real, real sages of India and mystics, and you know they're able to do that, at, you know, at will. Um, but most people, you know, that the, if they want to go astral traveling, they'll, they'll have to leave their physical dense material behind and go into another aspect of themselves. And we have many, many different aspects of consciousness. But the one that we're most aware of, the consciousness domain that we're, domain that we're most aware of, of is this one. So beyond the speed of light, beyond the perception horizon, we see it as dark matter and dark energy. We can't perceive it. We can't measure it. Actually, that's where all the the super bright stuff really is. So, you know that that's um you know we, we're in, there's so many different levels of consciousness, and uh, we're missing out on most most of the universe really. But by not understanding the link between consciousness and um, our reality, but we're, we're moving to a different era now. More and more people are starting to to recognize this. You know, I think we're all capable of, of capable of doing what the sages and the masters can. I always say that the biggest conspiracy of all is the secret to our own potential. But now that we're getting deeper, UFOs, aliens, and ghosts, some people are convinced they're, they're seeing something, and others are convinced they, they haven't seen anything. Are those seen bilocating to a different dimension where there exists a whole different reality, but we just don't see it most of the time? Um, you know, we we have to look at the fact that um, from a scientific point of view, I know a lot of people sit there and go, oh, no, this is such a stall. But, you know, just coming from a um, purely scientific, orthodox scientific perspective, if you have a phenomenon that um, such as ghosts that is reported in a similar way using similar kind of rules that, you know, some you feel cold when something appears and, you know, um, there's often a high emotion that's associated around the person that appears and, you know, all of these things. Um, if you see that in every single culture and every single era, um, from a scientific point of view, you've got to start to think, you know, there might be something to this because, you know, um, it's, it's, uh, it's it's just looking at it from even that perspective. So to dismiss every single culture and every single era um, it is not a really scientific approach. That's a dogma approach, and uh, that that's that's a materialist dogma to say no, this can't be because this is, um, you know, this is this is what we say is our reality, and this is it. But you know, to to look at uh, the scientific method, it's all about. Um, uh, forming a hypothesis from an observation. Now, if you've got an observation of ghosts, of aliens, of you know whatever it is, you know going throughout all eras, you know, and people are observing it. That's the first step of the scientific method to make an observation, and then you have to form a, a hypothesis from it. So you know to say that, that a person didn't make an observation. <laughs> It's just, you know, when, you, when you've got it in every single era, it's just nonsense. So for me, I mean, I, I live a multidimensional life, you know. I I, um, I see kind of uh, spirits through my sort of inner eye. You know, they're very rarely they'll sort of manifest in front of me that I can see them and think that they're, you know, people that, you know, just... But I kind of see that so I can report 
things that people are wearing. Um, you know, it's, I don't look for this. It kind of comes into, um, so I'm talking to someone, sometimes their relatives will kind of appear to me and I can tell them about their character, um, what they're wearing and things like that. And, um, and over the years, I've learned to trust this sense um, because I, I can say something and it sounds so silly. Uh, like somebody I know whose uh, father passed on when she was very young, um, she came to visit me. And uh, so her uh, father, um, I, I, she looks very young. My friend looks very young. So I didn't realize um, that uh, her father would have been, you know, in a different era, sort of a sort of 50s sort of rockabilly sort of era. And this man appeared to me and he was wearing, he looked like James Dean. And I was like, how can this be? Because this, my friend is so young. Why would her father look like that? So I described him anyway. And she said, yeah, that's how he dressed. Um, he died when he was very young. And, um, so that's actually how he dressed. So I was like, Oh, okay. You know, I wouldn't have thought that her father would have been from that sort of rockabilly fifties era, <laughs> but you know, that's so I've learned over the years to, to, um, trust that sense. And, um, even I question it, <laughs> you know, am I really getting this? Because it's healthy to actually question it, even your own. Um, channelings and things like that. So I, I've seen uh, alien beings. I think we also have different aspects of ourselves that are in different dimensions. And, uh, you know, you say about the potential. This is absolutely right. I think we all have the potential. And it's the biggest secret. It's the biggest thing that we are told um, to shut down all the time. Um, is our psychic sense, is our multidimensional sense. We have access to all of the dimensions. I mean, as long as we stay grounded and don't get lost in that, that's what, you know, we know is sort of mental illness, for example, where it's not very, we can't really function very well. But I mean, um, you know, if you stay grounded, there is absolutely the possibility that you can open up and experience these dimensions. Um, string theory and physics talks about these diff different dimensions. So many different aspects of physics actually talk about this. So what, what we're doing is saying, okay, you know, the quantum physicists are saying that everything is conscious of some of the quantum physicists, not all. Um, in fact, Max Tegmark, I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, he's quite a well-known physicist. He's just brought out a book recently where he's saying physics does not make sense unless you see consciousness as an actual part of reality. And this is a mainstream scientist. Um, so what we're getting now is we're getting um, a big shift starting to happen where, you know, someone like Max Tegmark can actually say this in public and open up a dialogue. It gives permission for other physicists to start to say this within the mainstream. So, um, I mean, we've still got a long way to go, but, um, you know, what, what we could be looking at is an understanding that there are many dimensions of consciousness. And each, in each of these dimensions of consciousness, our own minds can go there. We can experience these and we can also experience different beings, which is why, you know, ancient people like, um, Enoch, who was one of the, um, patriarchs of the Bible, Describe if you read the book of Enoch, which is kind of like a, a banned book of the Bible, but you yeah, know, some, right. yeah, some, some, uh, you know, copies resurfaced uh, about a hundred years ago. And, um, he describes these beings, tall beings arriving at his bed, taking her off to the heavens. And, you know, it's different language, but it's exactly what people are experiencing today. And, um, they report very, very similar experiences. And sometimes not too sure about telling people about it because they're a, a bit worried. But, um, you know, my friend had a, a crystal shop and she was amazed at how many businessmen and, and people would come up to her and say, um, I don't know how to say this and, you know, but I can't tell anyone, anyone about it. But she, they figured she had a crystal shop. So she <laughs> they thought she'd be all right. And they'd say, you know, these beings are visiting me at night and they're showing me this and that. And, 
they couldn't tell anyone about it. They were so afraid. So we've, we've created this in society that um, we're so worried about our own potential, like you're saying. And um, so, but the, the science is there. What the science to explain all this is already there. So I kind of also, I'm using science as an empowerment thing to say, um, you know, the science of angels is just the same as the science of flatland. You know, where, um, you know, if we were to look at people in flatland, we would seem omnipotent to them. We would seem like we're everywhere. And um, in the world, of, if we're in three dimensions and we look at someone in two dimensions, you know, just think about what what we would seem like to them and how weird a third dimension would seem, how weird volume would seem. And um, that's the way it is for beings of high dimensions as well. And uh, so, you know, their dimension doesn't quite make sense to our um, sort of three-dimensional minds. Um, we have other aspects of us, but yeah. So yeah, this this science can actually empower us in that way as well to understand with our intellectual self to free our spiritual selves. I can't believe one hour just went by, and we have to take a one and only intermission. But let me just end this segment by saying this: in doing what I do, Manjir. You have no idea of the many people I meet. Uh, I'm referring to scientists, researchers, a lot of our listeners that I meet in conferences, you know, many of them very successful people. They come to me and they're telling me that all of a sudden they're using the word consciousness as I've never heard before. For many years, consciousness was seen as an unimportant subject. But recently, I've seen this renewed interest in the subject. When we come back, I want you to tell me, why do you think that is? It, it seems to me that we're not discovering this. We're rediscovering. At one point in our history, I think that science and spirituality used to coexist. But something happened. I have this feeling that something happened along the way. And we had this, whether selective amnesia or sequestered information, to keep us separate, to keep us wondering, to keep us in the dark like mushrooms but I'll take your answer on the other side how can people buy punk science and your other books and learn more about your your work and the upcoming movie uh, well they can get the book from um, Amazon you know we're, we're in their country and um, also um, if they go to uh, punkscience.com or punksciencemovie.com um, you'll be able to find out more and sign up for the movie updates. You can get behind the scenes straight away into your email box if you sign up for, for punksciencemovie.com. Great, folks, don't go anywhere. This is a very fascinating interview. I, again, I cannot believe that one hour just flew by. I'm here with my special guest, Dr. Manjir Samantha Lawton. Don't go anywhere. So much more when we return. This is Mel Fambergas, and you're listening to Veritas. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy. Enjoy. 